Hello everyone, I'm Alex from the Cornell Advocacy Project. We're a student organization dedicated to providing an education and advocacy to anyone with an internet connection. Thank you for joining us for our second series of Speak Now. Each series focuses on a broad advocacy theme. In series one, Dismantling Division, we discuss the difficulties of advocating in politically and ideologically polarized spaces. During this series, The Art of Advocacy, we'll take an in-depth look at the way various art forms are used to support or even catalyze advocacy movements. We'll also examine the challenges that artists face in advocating for themselves and others. As always, we aim to provide you, our audience, with productive strategies for implementing your own advocacy goals. For today's episode, Constructing Change, we'll be discussing architecture as advocacy. We're joined by Aaron Pellegrino, a visiting lecturer from the Cornell University College of Architecture, Art, and Planning. In addition to her award-winning work as the founder and principal of her architectural design firm, Matter, Erin is the co-founder of Out of Architecture, a career consulting firm that helps architects explore the value of their skills in non-traditional contexts. So, Erin, let's start off with a little bit about your personal background. What first brought you into the field of architecture, and was it what you expected? Uh, first off, thanks for having me. Um, so I think what brought me to architecture, I kind of, I came about it somewhat in a backwards way. Um, I was surrounded by doers growing up. So contractors in my family, um, my grandmother's a dressmaker. She lived with us growing up and just surrounded by people who had ideas for things and then did them physically in the world, whether that was making cabinetry or clothing or, you know, an electrician, things like that. Um, <clears throat> so I kind of grew up around the spirit of just doing something, especially working with your hands and, and kind of having a, um, a physical output in the world. And I sort of never let go of that. Um, when I went into kind of later years of study, so high school and then starting to look at college, um, I was a little bit lost. I was going to be the first person, or I was, I ended up being the first person in my family to go to college. And I really just knew that my interests had a background in design, in making, and I also really just enjoyed physics in high school. So literally one day I Googled uh, physics and I think graphic design. And uh, you know, in that day, Google brought me back this idea of architecture as a field of study. I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, father was a contractor growing up and a cabinet maker, and I had always been around kind of the construction of things, but never on a full kind of building site. Um, and then I started talking to people about it and everyone said it was really hard and that I should choose something else and that the way my mentality or my sort of personality works is that if you tell me I can't do something, I have to go figure out how to do it. So um, I went into architecture with very little expectation. So to say that it was something that I expected or it didn't meet my expectations, I, I can't say I had an understanding of what I was getting myself into. Um, now I have a great understanding of <laughs> what I was getting myself into um, and I think, you know, I would, I would do it all over again, probably just about the same way, but um, no expectations going in, just went in as someone who really liked doing things and felt like architecture could be the ultimate form of, of doing things in the world. Awesome. Well, to that point of doing things, do you feel that, or do you think that many architects consider themselves to be advocates? Do you think of yourself as an advocate? I think... It's an interesting question because, especially when you study architecture, it becomes such an, an insulated or an isolated study, especially in school. You talk a lot about the discipline, the built environment around you, 
But the reality is architecture is a service-based industry. We have to intersect with society and therefore the, the needs of society because our world can only, and our profession can only exist in service of others. So I think whether or not an architect admits or recognizes that in some way they're an advocate for something, um, besides at least their own design agenda, we all are. Um, I think the amount to which you kind of accept that, that responsibility, I think depends on the type of architect that you become, who you work for, where you work, and what your priorities are. Um, I definitely think at its core, because it is a service industry, because we align so so closely with the needs of society and the future needs of society and are built upon the past, I think we have to be advocates. And I think recognizing that moving forward, whether you're a student, a practicing architect, or someone looking at going into architecture, putting that, willfully putting that hat on and trying to understand who you want to advocate for and what you want to advocate for would be a nice sort of shift in the field. And I think we're starting to see it um, just with taking on, you know, issues of sustainability, ethical practices. Um, it's no, it's unfortunately no secret that the profession of architecture deals with these things um, and needs to deal with these things. But I think the more we can um, maybe own that title, the better off we'll be. Own the title of advocate? Yeah. I agree with you completely. Perfect segue to the firm that you founded, or career consulting firm that you founded, which, as I said earlier, helps or aims to help designers explore non-traditional methods of practice. So why is it important for architects to be able to explore alternatives, possibly particularly in this vein of owning the title of an advocate? So I think it, it aligns really well with also owning the title of architect. And I guess what I mean by that is a lot of people who don't know an architect or who have never worked with an architect, or even if you think about me when I went to architecture school, don't really understand what an architect does. Um, you know, there's this sort of nostalgic notion of things like blueprints. I've been practicing for 10 years. I'm 30 years old. I've actually never seen a set of blueprints. Um, it's sort of a vestige of, of, of an earlier time. Um, I think architects are critical thinkers. They're expert generalists. We are people who look at abstract problems and um, can synthesize and correlate a lot of different expertise and, and issues and try to work towards a sort of better future, whether that ends up being a master plan, a building, a couch, it can reach all of these sort of variety of different scales. Out of architecture is a way to kind of own or take back ownership of the title of architect and not just say when you go out into the world that I have to follow a traditional path of, let's say, going to architecture school, going to work for an architecture firm, spending, you know, an entire career there and just working on the projects but that come in the door, but rather recognizing that a lot of the skills you learn as someone who is an arbiter of the built environment, um, learns to make things, learns to, to interface with the technology that it takes to build the world around us, means that you can work in a variety of different capacities and advocate for what the title of an architect really is, which I think at this point is really changing in the world. We see job roles that open up that have to do with design strategy or community engagement coordinators, you know, really being sort of boots on the ground as to how we start to gain back some agency in the built environment and sometimes the non-built environment in order to understand the role that we play in society. Um, and without of architecture, we work with a variety of people going into so many different roles. It could be tech, it could be government, um, 
it could be going off into their own sort of private practice. We work with startups. And what's interesting there is that while they started off potentially in architecture, maybe we are talking to them when they're graduating from school or we're talking to them 30 years into their career, we're talking to them about, you know, what makes them, what gives them the sort of passion for what they do and what values and skills they bring to the world. And then we try to help them design a pathway that allows them to best execute those skills. And in a lot of ways, I think that's probably at its core, helping them be a sort of self-advocate and also take away or take back the title of architect and decide what that means for them. We're saying the word architect a lot and this series is more generally about art and advocacy. And so we're trying to, I'm trying to think about the ways that the problems that we face in the architecture world are more broadly applicable or how we can project those. And so I'm thinking about uh, where and how designers might struggle to merge their artistic or design interests and their advocacy interests uh, all of those with their professional needs mm -hmm. coming down to the fact that they need to earn a living. Sure. And that's, I, th I think there's a popular conception that that's even harder for an artist than an architect. But, well, I guess one question to start off with is why do you think there is a struggle between consolidating their artistic and advocacy needs and their professional and feeding themselves needs? Well, I think in both art, architecture, design, in all of those things, it's a bit less clear, especially to the broader society, what it is that we do, what it is that you do. Um, when it comes to being an artist, it's also what voice do you bring or what lens and perspective do you bring? I think it's, you know, there are different forms of art and different media that makes that a little bit easier. Um, but for the most part, it's not an objective field, right? It's very subjective. You think about if you, you know, you trip and fall and you hurt yourself and you need to go to a doctor, the need is quite clear and how they can help you is quite clear. You have, you know, some sort of condition and the hope is you can get it fixed. Sometimes, especially when it comes to things like a project in the built environment or a brief, you know, potentially to do with an artist commission that's saying we really want to look at, you know, a condition of society or we want to look at a problem that our community is facing and start to address that through whatever medium it is you let's say, have training in, so art, architecture, whatever that may be, you need to be able to advocate for your perspective and the value that you bring and why you think you can sort of affect some sort of change on that or move the needle in some direction, kind of speaking really broadly because we don't have a, you know, a specific, um, a specific like project or brief that we're responding to. And a lot of that really has to do with being able to convey the value that you bring, your perspective on things, and also be a sort of a manager of, of stakeholders and a manager of ideas. And maybe both in, in art and architecture, someone is coming to you with a need and they haven't even been able to figure out how to articulate that as a problem or as a question yet. And a lot of what you have to do is know how to ask the right questions and, and also really know how to listen. You know, someone may say in my field, you know, as an architect, hey, I need, um, you know, I, I need a, a an ADU, I need something in my backyard um, that's a detached bedroom. And yeah, there's a sort of immediate need for that, right? I need to put some sort of dwelling unit in my backyard. But if you start to talk to that person and you find out one of the reasons that that is happening is because, let's say, 
a friend across town lost their home in a large community fire. And that fire happened because the fire code was not up to date or the fire inspections in that area had not been brought up to date and something awful happened where a lot of people lost their homes. That's not just solving one problem of this one person who needs a place for a, a person in their community to stay. It's a larger problem around what are we doing about you know a housing crisis that's localized to this town, let's say. Now that being said, there's a housing crisis you know, in general in, in our country and kind of around the world these days. So the questions we're asking to be solved are, hey, I have this immediate need of, let's say, a bedroom or a home or something, but they're rooted in larger and systemic issues or often larger and systemic issues. And what happens then is if you don't ask questions or you don't want to understand where these problems are coming from or really how you can start to affect change, you start only solving problems at a sort of one-off level. And what I think is really amazing about the position that architects, artists, people who are sort of in this culture of translating the needs of, a, of a, another human or a society into a, let's say, a physical thing that people are going to experience, whether it be a building or a, you know, a mural or let's say even a film, you have such a power there of communication and getting things out there for people to consume and have opinions about and learn about that I think learning to ask questions and learning to advocate for your ability to, you know, be a platform to allow for that to happen, I think we have to kind of take that on and own that. So kind of going back to your earlier question is, you know, our, our architects, our designers, our artists, are they advocates? Regardless, you, you end up being one. So the amount to which you own that and the amount to which you can sort of push that, I do think we should take on more responsibility there. And I think if we can empower students to do so, then that process starts even earlier. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And I guess a follow-up question to that is, what are the things that you think architects and artists can or should do to become better listeners? I mean, so at, at its base level, it's kind of practicing listening. Um, I think as uh, this is probably true for a lot of humans, um, <laughs> our brains tend to shut off after we hear certain words or we don't hear what we were expecting to hear or want to hear. And I think there's been more of a movement these days to be sort of an active listener and really trying to understand what the other person is saying. Sometimes it's the patience for listening as well. Um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to teach and I'm not always teaching or, or communicating with people that, you know, have English as a first language or, um, you know, we're talking about abstract concepts that haven't necessarily been, you know, introduced to them. So this idea of really listening, making sure that when you're communicating with someone, they're understanding what you're saying, you're understanding what they're saying, and asking clarifying questions, I think is, you know, really important. Trying to think about not only a great response to whatever someone is saying, but trying to understand it in such a way that you can ask questions and really start to dive deep, I think is really important. I've found more recently, and this is something I wish I had capitalized on more when I was a student, that if you get over the fear of, of not understanding and just asking when you don't, you know, know something or something didn't make sense to you, just, you know, finding a polite way to, to ask for clarification on that or to ask a follow-up question in a way that gets people to respond is incredibly useful. It's also a really interesting negotiation tactic. Um, there's a really, I'm a big fan of like, podcasts and TED Talks and Masterclass. And there's a Masterclass that's um, put out by Chris Voss, who's like a lead negotiator um, for the government in hostage crises. And he talks about negotiating kind of everything in life, not just 
no one's usually, or a lot of people are not negotiating hostage crises, but really just talking about, you know, even if you want to negotiate with your, you know, younger brother about what you guys are going to have for, for dinner if you're babysitting him that day, everything is a negotiation. And trying to get to the root, especially when you're dealing with really difficult topics of how someone is really feeling or what they're really thinking, they're usually not immediately going to tell you that. You have to ask, you know, important, or you have to ask useful questions and learn how to communicate and respond to what another human being or maybe a group of human beings are saying to you and asking questions in such a way that you can actually learn and have a dialogue about what needs to be done as opposed to, you know, a sort of a to-do list of what needs to be done. Mm. Your architecture firm, Matter, works on a variety of projects, including several with which you aim to be socially engaged. Mm -hmm. So before we get into these questions that build on your earlier points, can you give us your definition of social engagement, what that means to you? Yeah, so I mean, so I'm fortunate enough to also work with my partner Charlie in the firm who has a really kind of deep background in community engagement and, and dealing with that, particularly in the in the rural south, or at least that's where a lot of his training was. But I think for us, I'll sort of go through it in, in how we look at it, and for us and for me, it's really what can we do with the training that we have that allows us to be socially engaged in our communities. So I think there's a, a broader definition about um, the ways in which architecture can be socially engaged, and that can happen at you know, the society level, it can happen at the lobbying level, um, it can happen by being a part of certain groups or nonprofits, of which we are, are a part of to some degree. But for me, it's really, okay, I have a set of skills. I have a passion for the certain things that I do. How can I do that in a way that doesn't just benefit, let's say, me, my partner Charlie, or our business, but rather benefits our community? Um, and for us, really, it's, it's more of a, a mission and a sort of driving mandate than it is, a, let's say, a playbook or a to-do list. We try to find projects or problems that we feel we can actually do something about and then try to find the people who we need to have those conversations with in order to, you know, one, check to see if it's something we could or should do. You know, I think especially when it comes to um, art and architecture, you can have an opinion or a perspective on something, but it may not be correct. Mm. Um, I was a part of a project in my undergraduate that went to, you know, to South Africa to build a school. And one of the things I learned was that, you know, you can't just land somewhere and decide you're going to do something and assume it's going to be good for the community. So what we try to do really is, is look for opportunities where we can use the skills that we have, um, go through a series of sort of problem-solving exercises and dialogues to understand if we're if our hunch is correct, if there is a way that we can affect some change, and then do everything we possibly can to make, in this case, or in a few cases, a project come to life. Um, and that's not necessarily, like I said, a, a playbook that can apply to every scenario, but we've been able to sort of build sort of roots within a community to try to understand how can we keep pushing these ideas forward? What are the problems that are, the community is facing that we actually can have some agency over? And for the things that we can't, let's try to talk to the right people and bring them to the table to, to have that discussion. So for me, that's not letting a project kind of come through the door. It means you have to go out and be looking at sort of the problems around, around you in your community and figure out a way that you can be engaged. So for me, social engagement is really 
making sure that you're looking and you're actively listening, right, but also actively seeking opportunities where you can bring whatever sort of values and talents you have to a place to affect some change. So that's our understanding, or at least um, my representation of our understanding of what it means to be socially engaged. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And a lot of what I'm hearing in, or some ways that I'm projecting forward, what you're saying comes back to the earlier the earlier points about out of architecture and understanding, well, understanding the value that a person has to contribute. Right. So it requires, finding these opportunities requires not just being open to the opportunities, but having the awareness to understand how your skills and your abilities might apply in ways that you didn't under, didn't expect before. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, and I mean, I think it's also about, look, Art and architecture and design, these are all creative fields. There is no traditional way to be an artist, at least not these days, and there's really no traditional way to be an architect these days. So taking some ownership over the fact that you can actually design the way you interface with the world, either at an individual level and where you choose to go work or what organizations you choose to align yourself with, or at an entrepreneurial level, which is to say, this is the work or the type of work I want to do. I'm going to go out and find it. Mm. Rather than being, you know, I think if I were to hold a mirror up to the architectural profession, especially over the last, you know, 50 years or so, really just waiting for projects to come to you. And I think we're at a point in society where, one, so many people don't understand what we can do in society and what, we, what value we bring to issues of the built environment and beyond. And two, if they don't know, then they don't know to come to you. And therefore, you're being kind of pushed out or not even considered for really important conversations that are happening. And I think in order to get your sort of your foot in the door or get a seat at that table, it's not just going to manifest itself. You have to sort of make that happen. And I think that starts by asking the right questions, understanding the value that you bring, and then just being really tenacious about going out there and, and trying. So I, you know, I started with this idea that I came from a, a sort of family of doers, and I think, you know, I, I, I really value the education that I've, I've gotten, and I'm, I'm very grateful for it. But at some point, you have to stop thinking about problems and stop theorizing about them, and you have to go out and try something. And what's great about the field of, of being sort of creative and, and passionate is that. It's an iterative process. Architecture is an iterative, iterative process. Anyone who's gone through any sort of training to be an artist or worked at their craft knows that you have to fail a bunch and you have to put yourself out there. And it is a sort of emotional and, and you know burdensome exercise. But the more you do that, the better you get at trying and the better you get at, at putting a little bit of yourself out there and seeing if you know if it bears fruit. So I think architects, architects, designers, anyone who kind of operates with it within the uncertain world of creativity is really used to just trying things, failing a bit, but failing up mm. and learning, hey, this didn't work, but parts of it did and I could do this now. I think that's how anything really gets done. And the sooner you can sort of open yourself up and maybe get over that, I'd call it like a sort of insecurity, um, the better off I think the world will be. Absolutely. And I'm probably going to ask you a couple questions about that insecurity that you mentioned. But talking about this doing and iterating, particularly in school, you, in addition to teaching at Cornell, you recently taught a design build course at the New Jersey Institute of Technology that applied 
these principles that we were talking about, about community and social engagement. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and your experience yeah, there with? Sure. So I, so I grew up in New Jersey and went to Cornell for undergrad um, and then found my way back to the sort of New York metropolitan area. And when the sort of pan the pandemic hit, I had been teaching on and off at NJIT for a while. Um, my design partner, Charlie, had joined up in working with me and the pandemic hit and we were stuck teaching, uh, or not stuck teaching, but we were kind of all relegated to now teaching via Zoom, right, via a screen. And that was deeply frustrating for Charlie and I because we're, you know, we have a design build firm. We like to build things. And what we were excited about with these students was, you know, really working with, um, at that point in that semester, really working with them on issues of, of urban farming and urban food access in Newark, New Jersey because Newark is a food desert, our office is located there, and it's just, it's an issue that the city struggles with. And we happened to, while taking the students on a socially distanced walk, because we were so frustrated with the fact that we were uh, teaching over Zoom, we happened upon um, an area uh, that was being developed called Hope Village. And it was um, a sort of vacant plot of land, which Newark has a lot of these, that had been allocated by the city and the homelessness czar to develop a village out of shipping containers to address the needs of the homelessness of the homelessness issue in Newark. And when we happened to walk by there, the architect, who had been um, also the owner of a nonprofit who was helping Newark kind of develop this program, was there and we got to talking. So we were talking to him about the project we were doing at NJIT, and about a week later, the school asked us to put together a studio prompt about sustainability. That was what they were hoping that the next school year would start to address. And Charlie and I, you know, we were inspired by this talk with the architect of Homes for the Homeless, which was dealing with this project with Hope Village. And we were just like, there is no greater sustainable issue or sustainability issue than the fact that we were all sheltering in place during COVID. This was sort of, you know, spring 2020 than people who have no place to shelter. Mm. So architecture obviously has to deal with many issues of sustainability. You know, we're, I think the lens they wanted us to approach this from was, you know, carbon footprint, green ga greenhouse gas emissions, all of that. But for us, our definition of sustainability at that point was really that we had a, a housing crisis and we had people who were without homes meant to be sheltering in place in February in New Jersey. And that's just, you know, unsustainable. So. Like I mentioned, our office is located in Newark and it happens to be located in a building um, that it contains a group called Newark Venture Partners, as well as Rutgers Business School and Audible, which has their headquarters in Newark, which means at least pre-pandemic, we were constantly surrounded by people who had civic roots in um, Newark, funding roots in Newark, and also just a business presence. And everyone during the sort of COVID pandemic was really interested, interested in finding out ways that they could help. So we had a series of conversations. We put together a studio draft that looked at, you know, hey, can we start to address this problem in a real way? Can we do a design build studio? And then we looked to try to raise funding to be able to do it. Luckily, we were able to raise some funding. We were able to raise about $10,000. And the question we posed to the students and to the school was, hey, we have $10,000. How can we attempt to solve this problem with that amount of capital and with 15 students who are ready, willing, and able to attempt to address that issue? 
Um, we were also lucky in the sense that um, the head of city planning and, and Newark in general is really open to ideas and really wants to try a lot of things to address the problem. So we worked with them um, and had them a part of the, the conversation as much as possible. We had the, you know, the luck of, of being in touch with Hope Village One and getting their input as we were developing a prototype. And the students really took the problem and ran with it. We sort of gra uh, divided them into groups, one that dealt with community um, outreach and engagement, another that dealt with logistics, which was a huge issue during COVID in terms of getting materials and a third that dealt with this idea of deployment, because if we were going to go through the motions and, and all of this um, you know, effort to put this building together, we'd have to be able to move it, and hopefully it would be a system that could scale in the sense that you'd be able to build multiples of these. Um, and they didn't, did it. So we, we basically built this, uh, we call it the pod, which stands for place of dwelling. Um, but we built this system that would scale a structure of, of a roof and sort of platform. And then these pods could be inserted in it that were able to house different types of, of um, people that were sort of seeking to, to solve this issue of being unhoused. The city worked with us to develop what those demographics would be. So in this case, they wanted um, a system that could respond to an individual with a disability, so a physical disability, and they'd have to be able to sort of get around in a, in a space and be able to operate the furniture and whatnot from, um, from a wheelchair or some other sort of mobility issue. The second being um, a situation which happens apparently quite a bit, when someone has been living on the street, but people will have, will have a tendency to partner up, not necessarily out of romantic needs, but because being on the street with someone else mm. is important. So their bonds are formed, and it's actually incredibly um, traumatic to separate them. But sometimes when we have to go into different shelters that are either based on gender or faith-based, that sort of you know separation can be incredibly traumatic. So they asked for um, a system on the interior that could support two sort of platonic individuals living together. And then the third, which I think the students really also latched onto, was domestic violence survivors who often come with children, which meant a whole nother scale of investigation. So the students, as I said, built the, or designed and built this system that could house a series of these small pod units and then built a furniture system that could be adapted on the interior that could address each of those needs. Now, what is incredibly exciting about that is that they built it and it's there and we're in the process of um, transferring ownership from the school to the city so it will actually get deployed which is incredibly exciting um, but of course it's it's just a first stab at it right there are things that we would change there are things that we would do differently but because we have the thing now a lot more people are interested in other ways that that can happen or other ways that architects or design students or even artists in this case because we've been talking about um, different ways that we could get the community to embrace maybe doing more of these or having more um, prototypical villages like this in Newark and how to get the community involved in that because the thing exists people are now really excited about it they can walk by it they can drive by it and they can see it and we can get feedback because we know it's not perfect. Mm -hmm. And I think what the students and what Charlie and I are most excited about is that when it does go out to the world, we're hoping it will be used by someone who's you know, experiencing homelessness and that we can understand how we can make it better. And I think that goes back to this idea of like sort of iterating and trying something and failing. Like we don't want to necessarily be wasteful. Um, and we did have, again, 15 students donate their, their labor and we had a lot of people donate, you know, both money and time and materials to getting the project realized. But recognizing that 
we're not done. We did it once, and now it's a question of, okay, how can we make it better? And in order to do that, you have to engage in a dialogue. You have to know from your constituents, from the rest of the community, whether or not what you did is good, what aspects of it are good, what aspects of it are bad. Would we do this again? If we did do it again, what would we change? If we don't do it again, why? What did we do wrong? Mm. Or what, what went sort of sideways that would mean we shouldn't do something like that again? So that to me, and to, well, to, to us, because we're, we're continuing a sort of um, design-build dialogue with the school, is how do we keep projects like that going? Um, which I think is incredibly important to show to students as well, that they can, they can go out there and do something. Um, Newark is a great place for that. There's a whole culture of, of murals around the city. There's also a, a culture of sort of advocacy through art and by way of um, partnering with local businesses, um, doing a lot of festivals in the summer, getting sort of the youth involved in that sort of thing. Um, and I think we were really lucky in terms of we were in the right place at the right time and were given a series of opportunities and paired with you know, really talented and engaged students and, and were able to kind of realize a project like that. You mentioned earlier that you feel bringing, bringing advocacy and owning advocacy into the process of education earlier will naturally do nothing but help and help the profession as a whole own that title. Have you seen any of that effect on your students through being able to engage this directly with a very real issue? Yeah, I mean, um, well, first off, I think there was this excitement around the idea that finally all the work they were putting into something wasn't just going to be a grade that gets handed back to them at the end of the semester. There was going to be a, a, a physical thing, like an actual thing that they could stand in and inhabit that other people could, could do as well. Um, so that was a, an initial, I think, confidence boost to see that they actually did it. I mean, um, there's something really satisfying if you if you make anything doesn't have to be a, a building, it can be, you know, it can be after you paint a room, right? Just being able to stand back and, and see that you did that and, and see a sort of one-to-one -one correlation with your effort is always, I think, inspiring. Um, of the students themselves, one, a lot of them have continued to work on the project because their semester has ended, but for them and, and for us as well, there's more to be done, there's, there's questions to be answered, um, and there's improvements to be made. And we've seen a lot of them come back and want to work and push this project forward. We've also seen a slight cultural shift at the school in terms of really understanding that there are a lot of things that can be done with the, the means and the wherewithal of, of that size of a class over the you know 15 weeks of studio and the school has really capitalized on that and wanted to integrate that more into the program and I think it's it's also sort of reinforced this um, already existing dialogue that the school had with the community um, which is in the form of a sort of design collaborative where the community can come to the school and ask for you know showcase some needs that they have and see how the school can respond to that and I think that works for everybody it, it it improves kind of the standing of, of everybody. It obviously needs to be done well and it needs to be well resourced and everyone needs to sort of be passionate about it being, um, passionate about being involved in it. But yeah, I think it's, it started a cultural shift and I think it proves that even as a student, there's a lot that you can do. Um, since then we've had other students come to us and say, hey, I know this person. Um, we had someone come to us, one of our former students from that studio talked to us about a need that they've found in their community for veterans housing and started conversations with the um, 
the um, the VA in their their local area, and also started to try to put together a network of how we can make a project, potentially a project, out of that and bring that through the school. So, I think once you show that even as a student, what you can do can affect some positive change, people start looking around and saying, oh, I don't. I don't have to just wait for a, a professor or you know the school to bring this in. I could potentially bring this to the school and, and this student in particular will graduate by the time this studio ever manifests. But in his mind, for him, I think bringing that as a, as a potential and knowing that you know we did one good thing, can we try to do another one and learn from that? That to me is, is the most successful aspect of that, mm. that students are saying, wow, I, I took a look around and there's a lot I think we can do. And I actually know a couple people that we can have a series of conversations and, and see where it goes. Um, it does mean you have a lot of conversations that sometimes go nowhere. But I do think that those are still often really useful in and of themselves. There's an iteration process in those conversations as well. Absolutely. It sounds like... I mean, it's, it sounds wonderful, and the way that we're talking about it is couched specifically in terms of students and school, but I think it's really applicable at any, any scale of civilization, yeah. right? The, any citizen can understand that they can see a need and they can have an idea and take that to people and have conversations and start to get something done about it in the same way that a student can. The, I wanted to return, I said I would do this, I wanted to return to the insecurity yeah. bit because that's something that I think everyone suffers from it to some degree or another. I guess students are just maybe sometimes more vocal about it, at least um, that's my experience. So um, there was a specific phrase that you used, an insecurity mindset up. Uh, I usually yeah, call them an insecure, insecure overachiever. That's yeah. it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us more about what that means, yeah. and then how we can go about combating that for ourselves and maybe for our friends and associates as well? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because the idea of the insecure overachiever, to some point, at some point in my mind, started off as a bit of a joke. Um, but as a joke, because that that was me as a student, um, <laughs> and it's a little bit of like you know self-efficacy. But um, it actually comes from I invited a uh, a client of mine to give a lecture to one of my professional practice courses classes on um, believing in your ideas. And he's a, an investor in young startup companies, which means you're often investing in the person and their idea. You typically don't have much traction. You may or may not have a product or a thing that you're selling yet. You're only sort of investing in the idea and the person. So I asked him to come to talk to um, the class, which was full of uh, architects, artists, and, and, and planners, because that's the, the course, or that's the college at Cornell that I was teaching it at. And he started talking about this sort of phenomena that he would see. and sort of during that class we sort of coined this term and it was it was indicative of what I find I went through as a, as an architecture student as a student of design and what I consistently find my students kind of grappling with um, and I think it comes from a series of, of instances one at least in the training of, of something like the arts 
you are working under people with much more experience than you. It's always kind of this sort of apprenticeship model, and it's evolved from that from, you know, decades and actually hundreds of years of the way we teach a craft. That could be being a stonemason, it could be being an architect, it could be being a painter. You learn from people who've done it before. And that, in, that act can be intimidating because that person has, that you're learning from, has so much experience that you don't have. And I think there's also an intimacy to the way you learn that way. Because especially in, in architecture school, but it, this is true in other design programs, um, you are working with someone not just through lecture, but they are you know, standing at your desk or they are helping you sort of form something or showing you how they create things, right? And so you, you learn to be sort of reverent and respectful of this. And I think sometimes that gets internalized as, I'm not there yet. Especially when you're in school, you're not there yet. Um, I think Ira Glass talks about this issue where, you know, when you go into the arts, it's really difficult because you, you inherently go in because you have taste, but you also know that your stuff is crap. Or at least it starts off as crap, even, even if you have talent, right? You have to kind of work towards this. And I think students, and I did this as well, you get really good at certain aspects of, of making and doing, but that sort of insecurity of, of always knowing that you could be better and that like game of, or, or that constant question of what if, what if I had more time? What if I had thought of this sooner? What if I, you know, did it this way? Because that possibility sort of always exists, I think we are constantly feeling like it's not enough. And even if the work is great, I, I have this problem even with the work that we do now, like I can't photograph any of the projects that we do because I can't see it from any sort of fresh perspective. When I go and look at something, I'm like, that's wrong, we did that wrong, um, I would do this better, this is broken now, or, or whatever. So I think, you know, we're constantly trained to look at where we can improve and therefore to take a step back and take stock and understand, no, this is, this is what I'm doing. That's really hard. And typically in school, that happens at the end of the semester and it usually happens in private. You have your final review or your final showcase and then you go off, you get your kind of feedback from a critic and then you have to sort of download what that whole process was like. And I think there's a disconnect, absolutely. Even if you could be proud of the work that you did, you're constantly questioning how you could have done that better. And I think that festers. Um, that being said, the profession of architecture is also riddled with a lot of sort of inequality and, and issues around, I think, cultivating a really good mentorship model that gets students and young professionals um, to feel to feel confident with the talent and the, the work that they bring to the world. Mm. But you also don't know what you don't know. And I think we're acutely aware of that, that there's a lot we don't know. Um, so I think that starts to eat at people or at least started to eat at me for, for quite a while. And there is something to be said for the sort of kind of fake it till you make it, or, or you kind of have to fake confidence um, until you actually believe in it. But you, your sort of personality and the way that you advocate for yourself and your work is also an iter iterative process. It's not just gonna be like you graduate or you get that job or you get that commission and all of a sudden you're on top of the world. Um, you constantly have to work on, on how you present yourself and part of that is looking internally and understanding, you know, okay, there are things I need to improve upon, but I have a lot I can bring here. How do I, how do I at least put myself out there so that my ideas have a shot? I know a lot of people, including a younger myself, that would have really liked to hear that, really <laughs> needed to hear that. Um, I'd, like to, I'd like to shift gears a little bit and 
address some of the questions that we're getting from the audience because we're actually getting quite a few and they're kind of interesting. So one of the first ones is, can the artist collaborative business model be applied to architecture and or multidisciplinary professional organizations? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know less about the artist collaborative business model as a business model, um, so I can't speak to that uh, mechanically. But I do know that there are a lot of incredibly successful multidisciplinary firms that are able, I think, to do more than your traditional, or let's say your, your siloed um, firms. And I think that's simply because you have more diverse voices at the table. Um, an, an incredible mentor for me um, was not an architect, he's, he's an engineer, his name is Hanif Kara. He's a, a, he started a, an engineering firm in London that now works with artists, other engineers, architects on sort of groundbreaking building technology and doing projects that, you know, you would have looked at 20 years ago and said that's not possible. It's not possible maybe from a technical standpoint or from a, a, a let's say a cultural or social or governmental standpoint. And I think part of the strength of that is he, one, he ha he's, has a sort of, of a, a personality and a way of approaching working that I think attracts amazing talent. But two, he's able to bring so many different voices to a table and think about how can we get this done? Not, you know, can we do it, but how can we do it? And I think that was such a fundamentally important um, question to ask. And it's one of the things I really like about the fact that as an architect, I have the privilege of working with contractors and engineers who, again, are just doers, right? So when you bring them a problem, it's not, can we do it? It's, all right, how could we do it if we wanted to do this? So I think opening up the field, letting different voices and different, you know, let's say backgrounds or professions come in would always be helpful to the bottom line. Now, I think there's a, another part of that question that's about really the business mechanics. And I think that's probably a bit too complicated to dive into without more context. But I do think there are, you know, types of ownership, there are definitely ownership structures that allow for a lot of different things to happen and a lot of different liabilities to be filtered through because that's usually what owning a business boils down to is how you protect yourself from liability and how you are taxed. Um, but there are absolutely different ways to do it. Another great way to go about it is a nonprofit, um, depending on the mission of the business or doing something like a B Corp, um, which allows for a more diverse structure and a lot of different voices to come in and also a way to kind of manage all of that without having to accept certain amounts of risk. Okay, thank you for that. So context, understanding where you should speak and where you shouldn't is important in advocacy in general. How can art architects and artists more broadly know where it is appropriate to intervene through their work and where it isn't? Yeah, I mean, again, I don't know if there's an immediate playbook or a sort of scientific method to follow for that. Um, I always kind of joke that in when you're training yourself as a creative, you're not really an academic and therefore you you don't necessarily know how to research as well as a true academic. And I say this as someone who teaches, you know, at an, at an Ivy League institution and, and other well-respected fields, but I am not an academic. Um, I am not someone who, you know, I would say that I can, I can go speak to someone who's studying, you know, in, in the sciences and say that I know how to research as well as you. I don't. I know that I don't. But you can take a, a more sort of open approach to how you research. So 
if someone were a scientist, right, they'd go about um, researching an issue with a lot of data and a lot of scientific study and using the scientific method and positing a thesis. And I think the first start of the, or the first approach to that as someone who's a creative is being as open as humanly possible and really questioning the biases that you bring to something and doing the best, the best job you can to turn those off. Part of that is active listening, but sometimes it's not someone who's speaking, right? Um, for Charlie and I, for example, a lot of this has been spending time in the city of Newark and walking around and seeing what people do, seeing where they go, seeing where they eat, um, seeing where we see the same people over and over again, what sort of things are they talking about, really just being a sort of I don't know, a, a sponge for the reality around you and constantly questioning how you perceive that reality. Um, that also goes back to having the confidence of asking questions. And I was an incredibly shy kid growing up. So the idea of like going up to a stranger and being like, what do you think about, um, you know, the, the project they've proposed out here mortified me and probably at some point still does. But my curiosity now has sort of quelled at least that side of me, and it, it's one it's one out, right? And I think if you are a creative person, you are inherently curious. So let the curiosity kind of beat out the insecurity and just be constantly open and looking at things. And I, I can't stress enough that the making sure that your own biases are not getting in the way. Um, even if you feel like you know something so well, or you know like where you're, you're looking to do something in a place that you're from or you're trying to maybe it's an identity that you you feel as though you own completely i think we really need to question how we approach the way we look at things because our perspective is everything it's all we have we don't always have the data to bounce against that being said there are also often great ways to get data <laughs> so embracing some actual real methods of research as it uh, refers to the quantitative is also useful but the qualitative for us our biggest pitfall will be whatever whatever biases we bring to that. Um, and that's something that I, I really value in the work that Charlie and I do together because I think we ask each other really hard questions sometimes. And it, it I'm not going to say it, it, it can, I think, make things uncomfortable, but we have a sort of rapport that allows us to be like, no, I'm going to ask this question and challenge your thinking on that because I have a different perspective and, and let's unpack that. And it ends up not being who's right and who's wrong, but rather like how do we more wholly understand something? Mm. And that's super important. That sounds delightful, and I'm hearing a lot of a lot of return to the previous point and how interacting with people, just interacting with so many different kinds of people and connecting with them as the architecture field rather demands that we do can be a huge help in understanding those different points of view. Mm. There's it's it's not surprising we mentioned sustainability and environmentalism once, so it's come up again. Uh, can architects be effective advocates for legislative or regulatory solutions to climate change? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that ends up being something that is very hard to do alone unless you are, well, Norman Foster, right? Like someone who, who owns a, a massive firm that does a lot of work in this endeavor and, and can maybe take on huge projects that can make a statement, right? Mm -hmm. But it takes a long time to get to that point in, in your career and that's not necessarily actionable advice. So I think the way you do that is you do the best you can to get involved and be informed and push either at a localized level for certain things to be um, 
addressed, whether that be an issue within your community or where you happen to be doing a project, but also getting involved in different professional organizations and pushing them to be better. I'm highly critical of the AIA, but at its, at its core, it's a lobbying group and it's supposed to lobby for legislation that we believe in as architects. I say we as architects, I'm actually not a member of the AIA, but that is a group that is, is meant to be doing that. And I, I would say has put forth, you know, goals for that. Um, but I think it, it really starts at least at the individual level because that's where I, I try to figure out where I can do things. I get very paralyzed when it comes to big ideas of big problems that I don't know how to address. <laughs> so I try to localize it to the individual. And what I know I can do is educate myself. I can, you know, go through a process of lead which is a sort of energy uh, accreditation um, uh, or certification system, and I can decide if I think that's useful to the work that I do or not. Same thing with something like Passive House, which is another accreditation or certification system. And I think the more we can get educated on what we can do, the best, the more better we can affect that change. But at a lobbying level or at a legislative level, you have to be willing to get involved probably with something much bigger than you mm. and dedicate a lot of your energy to that. And, and there are absolutely people who do. Um, another sort of hero, and this is not necessarily to do with sustainability, but it has to do with value and, and value of the worker is, is Peggy Deemer, who works, you know, incredibly closely with the architecture lobby and does a lot of writing on, you know, advocating for the value of architects. So I think you'd have to be willing to get involved with different organizations and embed yourself in such a way that you can get to a point where you can, you know, direct some of that change. But again, you still have to be listening and curious and, and educated enough um, so that you're making sort of the right suggestions or demanding the right change. Absolutely. Which would you say has been your most challenging project? And is there something you could have done differently to make it less challenging? Um, good question. <laughs> um, well, so I get bored really easily, and I've found that if I take on a really easy project, um, I end up not wanting to finish it <laughs> because I, I end up getting bored. So challenging is, I guess there's a couple ways to attack that question. The most technically challenging project I had to work on, I think, was one of my first ones out of, or actually started during grad school, um, which was Alpine Shelter Scuta which I worked with Hanif on. He was the structural engineer for that project. And we had to put a building on a mountain, um, which has all these issues of complexity. Um, <laughs> we had to design it in such a way that it could be lifted by a helicopter. Um, and surprisingly, when you have to do that, gravity is not your most um, important force. So most of the time we're dealing with buildings that go on the ground and gravity, meaning getting things to stand up, is the hardest thing we have to work with, work against. In this case, it was actually being picked up, so the inverse of that. Um, so those technical challenges were, were super interesting. Um, there was a side to that technical challenge that felt incredibly real, which was the fact that we had a meeting and I was a student again at the time, but we had a meeting with the helicopter pilots who had to pick this thing up. And they, they showed up in full, like, Top Gun uh, jumpsuit. They took the helicopter to the meeting. But at some point during this, they're talking about, all right, we have to get the right weather conditions to lift this thing up, because if not, the helicopter will crash. And it became incredibly real to me that the project we were doing and what we wanted to do, which was put this building on a mountain, it was a shelter for people who were mountain climbing, um, could kill somebody. 
And the reality is when you build a building, you could always kill somebody, whether it's a, uh, an occupant or someone falls off a scaffolding or, you know, partial collapse because the sequencing hasn't been done right. But for some reason, it, it was never sort of even coming from, a, you know, a family of, of tradesmen. That never really hit me until we were in this meeting and the helicopter pilot was like, well, if we do it this way and we do it wrong, we'll die. So that really brought home this idea that what we do is, is incredibly important. And even though there we're trying to do something slightly differently, we always have to remember that things could always go catastrophically wrong. Now, that being said, that project was incredibly successful, um, but there were a lot of sleepless nights of trying to figure out how things worked. There was also language barriers. The project um, was in Slovenia and time issues in terms of coordinating with people, but everyone was incredibly passionate about the project. And we were surrounded by people with a lot more experience, which was incredibly helpful because I was still a grad student and I didn't know anything. Um, or I knew very little about how to actually execute this project. Um, the next or the next most complex or, or complicated and difficult project was the a project, a design build project we did, I did as a second year and it was 60, you know, architecture students. Um, and that was the one where we went to South Africa to build the school. That was riddled with a lot of personal insecurity, a lot of personal insecurities of other group members, um, a lot of miscommunication. All of the problems of that project were interpersonal. Um, my actually, my co-founder out of architecture and I had a lot of issues in, in South Africa when we were realizing that project. And we ended up having to get to a point where, whether it be our personality or the way we approached the project, we were just hitting so much resistance that we both just walked away. Um, we did try to do it in a really responsible way. We gave up the responsibilities that we had to other people, but, and I'm not going to speak for Jake, but that is always eaten at me as how did that go so wrong? Mm. And again, it was a successful project. It got built. We are proud of, of the work that was done, but we realized at some point that us being there and trying so hard with what we were doing just wasn't working with the team dynamic. And the only way I think you can improve upon that is one, look at yourself and say, what did I do wrong? And then two, at what point did things start to go like either off the rails or at what point did things get to a point where a point of no return, where we had to actually walk away. And that really is, you know, how you, how you get better. And now when I see my students in group projects, you know, hitting a point of contention or whatever, I just, we just bring it up and we, you know, we look at things like organizational behavior and we talk about, hey, the goal is the project, so let's check on why this isn't working and let's fix it because we have a mutual goal. Let's get all the other stuff out of the way. Mm. That's fantastic. Um, we are just about out of time, but if you could, if you were to leave the audience with one nugget, one piece of advice regarding advocacy in artistic professions, what do you think that would be? Do something. I would say, you know, it's really easy to get completely overwhelmed with all of the the problems and even opportunities out there. Start small, do something, talk to people, get people's opinions, understand what you can do with your person or your group of people to just start. I think the hardest thing is, is starting. You'll figure everything else out as you go. You're in an iterative field. You know what it's like to fail. So just, just try and go from there and just keep an open mind. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Erin, for no, all you. of this, this advice. So that concludes Constructing Change, our first episode in Speak Now Series 2, The Art of Advocacy. 
I hope that you enjoyed yet another conversation brought to you by the Advocacy Project from Cornell University, where we make it our mission to teach the basic skills in persuasion, public speaking, and effective communication to anyone with an internet connection. Today's episode is co-sponsored by Cornell ILR. To learn more about the Advocacy Project's story, as well as our co-sponsors, make sure to check out advocacypro.org. Again, that's advocacypro.org, where you can take the first steps in wielding the power of your words, even when those of others might falter. Until next time, thank you for listening.